My people are from Wisconsin. We used to be from New York. We had a little real estate problem. Charlie Hill. Johnny Roberts drives five hours to every gig and five hours back. For an Ojibwe social worker and part-time stand-up in the Red Lake Nation, getting to the closest open mic night requires an arduous five-hour drive. Johnny Roberts says goodbye to his wife, two children, and eight young foster kids before departing on this exhausting routine. Roberts is driving to Minneapolis to do a show for an audience that might not even show up. It's a long drive there and a long drive back, a total of 10 hours, but it's the only way for this reservation comic to get himself some stage time. After having logged several thousand miles, 100,000 miles, driving vast distances from gig to gig, his 2004 Chevy Silverado has stopped working. Roberts thinks the transmission is probably dead. He borrows his wife's black Dodge Nitro this afternoon and heads in the direction of Highway 89. It's pretty much farmland all the way until St. Cloud, Minnesota, says Roberts. There are a few malls and gas stations, but mostly it's a lot of nothing. As he drives past the water tower with the Red Lake Nation insignia, he stops at the Red Lake Trading Post to fill up the tank. It'll cost him 120 to get him to the gig and back, a gig that pays $0 and will last 7 minutes. Red Lake encompasses 800,000 acres of mostly flat landscape. Roberts grew up here obsessively recording stand-up comedians off of television, hoarding VHS tapes of the 1980s comedy boom. Commuting is his only option. He has few neighbors here who share his passion. They've tried comedy shows at the casino here, but it's hard to get people to come out. There's not much interest for comedy shows in this area, and not much opportunity for stage time. So I take the 260-mile trip for this experience. There is resilience in Red Lake, yet the reservation reels from intergenerational trauma in the form of addiction and suicide. A survey by the Minnesota Department of Health and Education determined that 48% of high school girls have attempted to end their life, and 81% have considered it. In a community with fewer than 2,000 people, friends, neighbors, and family members are affected. In his capacity as a social worker, Roberts is only too familiar with the issues. As he heads toward the highway, he drives past a series of homemade billboards created by local school kids as part of a class project, Up With Hope, Down With Dope, and it's Life or Meth. 30 miles into the commute, he enters Bemidji, Minnesota, and stops for a bathroom break. Down the street is a statue that stands 18 feet tall. Made of concrete and plaster, the roadside attraction known as Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox has adorned thousands of postcards since 1937. Now armed with a bag of packaged popcorn, Roberts takes U.S. Route 2 out of the city and fumbles with a phone cord. He queues up a playlist of podcasts, WTF with Mark Marone, 
Urban Indians, hosted by Gabriel Nightshield, Red Man Laughing, hosted by Ryan McMahon, and the Monday Morning Podcast with Bill Burr. He has four more hours to go. Arriving in Minneapolis, just as the sun is setting, he walks into the Spring Street Tavern, where 15 young comedians are milling about. There are nine people in the crowd. Roberts sits in a corner, reviewing a notepad, scratching out some topics and adding others. Tonight is his first bout of stage time in 47 days. 90 minutes later, he's on stage telling jokes. I think it's great that Bruce Jenner transitioned to Caitlyn Jenner, he tells the sparse crowd. But I don't think she should have picked a young woman's name. I mean, she's 70 years old. Are you kidding me? Her name should be Gladys. After the show, the other open mic comedians are hanging out, smoking joints, talking about their next gig, but Roberts is already gone. He has to take his house full of kids to daycare in the morning. It's 11 p.m. and there's a five-hour drive ahead of him. I've been doing stand-up for eight years, says Roberts. Sometimes I think I should just quit. Compared to his contemporaries in Los Angeles and New York, the amount of stage experience Roberts has is minimal. In New York, a comedian with eight years of experience can get on stage every single night. Someone who's really hustling can do as many as six shows in a single evening. Roberts is lucky if he gets on stage once a month. That makes it hard to move forward. Most open mic hopefuls are between the ages of 18 and 23. Roberts is in his early 40s. It's an advanced age for sure, he says, although they said Rodney Dangerfield went back to comedy at 44. So that's always in the back of my mind. Some of his ambition is motivated by a desire to get away from his job, and some of the things he has seen as a social worker have left him shaken. I just want to walk away from the things I read about in the files. I just want to walk away from what I see on a daily basis. I don't know how much longer I can deal with this. I have no outlet. Roberts hopes stand-up is the answer. Degrading, demoralizing, and degenerating. Go on stage or go to jail. That was the option presented to Native American prisoners of war during the final three decades of the 19th century, when freedom of mobility was curtailed and free will suppressed. P.T. Barnum and William Buffalo Bill Cody were the two most famous names of 1800s showmanship. One was a famous circus impresario, and the other staged Wild West recreations, and they both subjugated Native peoples for the entertainment of white patrons. In the 1840s, Barnum presented Native Americans as sideshow attractions under the auspices of pseudo-anthropological nonsense. At P.T. Barnum's American Museum in New York City, Native Americans were showcased for their authenticity. But the great showman wanted Native peoples to represent his idea of authentic. If they did something that was actually authentic, he flew into a rage. These wild Indians seemed to consider their dances as realities, complained Barnum. Damn Indians, anyhow, they are a lazy, shiftless set of brutes though they will draw an audience. Sideshows were gaining traction at the time. 
So-called dime museum freaks like the alligator man and the bearded lady were popular. Into the mix came native captives who were paraded around with racist backstories. Typical freak show promotions included Yen Awawa, advertised as an Indian princess and child rescued from one of the South Sea Islands by a sailor. In reality, they were a mother and child kidnapped from the plains of Iowa. Natives were not participating of their own free will and could not have done so even if they wanted. Government policy kept them imprisoned on reservations where they were held at gunpoint. If the reservation system is to be maintained, discontented and restless or mischievous, Indians cannot be permitted to leave their reservation at will and go where they please, wrote E.A. Haight, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs in 1878. If this were permitted, the most necessary discipline of the reservations would soon be entirely broken up. All authority over the Indians would cease. Every movement was tightly controlled by the government and its military. Any native who strayed from the reservation on which he or she had been forcibly placed was punished, beaten, or killed. In a landmark court case, the Ponca leader Standing Bear challenged the laws restricting Native American freedom of movement in 1879. A federal judge ruled in favor of the peaceful Indian to come and go as he wishes, with the same freedom to a white man. However, that freedom was often overruled by the same authorities who determined who was or was not a peaceful Indian. It was at this time that rules concerning blood quantum were developed. The system imposed on Native Americans blood quantum was a way to diminish the number of Natives to whom the government owed something in exchange for land. Vin Deloria Jr., author of the influential book Custer Died for Your Sins, wrote of the laws passed during and after the Civil War that systematically excluded Indian people. For a long time, an Indian was not presumed capable of initiating an action in a court of law, of owning property, or of giving testimony against whites in court, nor could an Indian vote or leave his reservation. Indians were America's captive people without any defined rights whatsoever. There was nothing scientific about blood quantum. The percentage of blood assigned to Native Americans was arbitrary. Natives forced onto reservations were deemed full blood or half blood by a white government agent, depending on their appearance. One one man might be deemed 100%, while his sibling was labeled 50%. These capricious decisions cheated descendants out of land and annuities. The legacy of this practice endures to this day. The erasure of native religions and languages became government policy during the final 30 years of the 19th century. Native children were forcibly separated from their families and sent to boarding schools to indoctrinate them. In both Canada and the United States, violent subjugation was policy. Canada's first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, made child separation a hallmark of his administration. Macdonald said, When the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents, who are savages, 
and though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage. Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence, and the only way to do that would be to put them in central training industrial schools, where they will acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men. Funded by the federal government and contracted to religious missionaries, the purpose of a residential school was to reprogram Native American Native American children by force if necessary, eliminating their tribal beliefs, modes of dress, music, language, and thought. If they resisted, they were brutally abused. Known as residential schools because students were required to reside on campus, the institutions were notorious for their cruelty. When students spoke in their native languages, they were punished by having their tongues punctured with sewing needles. At the St. Anne's residential schools run by the Oblet Order in Fort Albany, Ontario, a makeshift electric chair was built to punish students with electric shocks. Those who vomited in the wake of such abuse were forced to kneel and eat what they coughed up. Sexual abuse was especially rampant, and most schools had cemeteries on site. Funerals were often presided over by the very priests who had abused the deceased. An article in Canada's Saturday Night magazine published in 1909 stated, Indian boys and girls are dying like flies. Even war seldom shows as large a percentage of fatalities as does the education system we have imposed on our Indian wards. As First Nations people rose in objection, Prime Minister Macdonald said they were forgetting all the kindness that had been bestowed upon them, forgetting all the gifts that had been given to them, forgetting all that the government, the white people, and the Parliament of Canada had been doing for them, in trying to rescue them from barbarity. With these policies in place, it is little wonder natives were absent from show business while Jewish immigrants and African Americans flourished on the stage. In 1883, Buffalo Bill Cody presented what would become his infamous recreations of American history for the first time. Before entering show business, he participated in the forcible relocation of Kiowa and Comanche peoples with a Union army. Buffalo Bill scholar Dean Stillman said, Cody bragged about his exploits. So too, by his own account, did he kill an Indian in his youth, and others later, while he was employed as a wagon train hand. His life was fictionalized in a series of best-selling pulp novels and magazines, many of which established the stereotypes that later emerged in Western movies. One historian described Buffalo Bill's Wild West as the most important commercial vehicle for the transmission of the myth of the frontier. The shows were filled with horse-riding stunts and patriotic fanfare. Native performers enacted scenes that ended with their very own subjugation. Buffalo Bill's slogan was, Everything Genuine, but his desire for realism appalled his cast when he insisted on using the actual scalps of murdered natives as props. Hundreds of Native American performers toured in Wild West shows at the turn of the century. 
Most considered it a respite from the oppressive reservation system, a lesser of two evils. Neither inexperienced nor naive, some volunteered to join with P.T. Barnum and Buffalo Bill simply to escape the oppressive reservation system and attain an income on the side. It was reported that some split payments with Barnum and Cody to help recruit others. Those hired as interpreters secured favorable conditions and good pay. Harvard scholar Philip Deloria said that joining a Wild West show served as a form of escape from agency surveillance. Nearly 100 natives were recruited from the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota every year. Indeed, the most significant regular flow of money onto that reservation between 1883 and 1913 may have come from Lakota performers traveling nationally and internationally, wrote Deloria. The late 1880s and early 1890s in particular were starving times for many Indian communities, and performing represented not simply escape, but also food and wages for Indian actors from a number of reservations. The Office of Indian Affairs, later the Bureau of Indian Affairs, objected to both the Standing Bear decision and Buffalo Bill's recruitment process. They believed providing natives with a taste of freedom would make their imprisonment unmanageable, insisting that no natives leave without the permission of the OIA they fined Buffalo Bill several hundred dollars for doing something that the courts had already determined was perfectly legal. Thomas J. Morgan, the new OIA commissioner, came up with a blackmail plan. He announced that anyone wishing to join a Wild West show was free to do so, but if they did, they would be stripped of their allotments and the annuities spelled out by treaty. He wrote in his annual report, Indians must conform to white man's ways, peaceably if they will, forcibly if they must. Suddenly, it became much harder for Buffalo Bill to secure performers. Few were willing to risk losing their tribal status or the paltry annuities granted them in exchange for land. As a workaround, Buffalo Bill secured permission from federal authorities to offer potential Native American performers a plea deal. Join the show or go to jail. The famed Hunk Papa Lakota leader Sitting Bull fled to Canada after the Battle of Little Bighorn and the death of General Custer in 1876. After months in hiding, he was extradited back to the United States, where he was given the option of prison time or performing with Buffalo Bill. Reduced to a mere sideshow attraction, comedian Rich Hall observed in his 2012 television special Inventing the Indian, it was as if a Guantanamo detainee suddenly had to appear on X Factor. About 30 Native Americans captured at Wounded Knee were forced by the army to tour with Buffalo Bill in lieu of prison sentences, explained historian Laura Broder. Wild West shows were an escape from reservation life, but the conditions were far from ideal. The New York Herald quoted a performer in 1890, All the Indians in Buffalo Bill's show are discontented 
ill-treated, and anxious to come home. There were accusations of negligence, inadequate medical care, and poor living quarters. An investigation was opened after five Native performers died during an overseas tour, and Buffalo Bill was ultimately fined for the mistreatment of 75 Indians. A new policy was implemented in response. Any showman recruiting Native Americans for Wild West shows was now required to provide a cash deposit to the OIA. Depending on the number of performers requested, security bonds were as high as $10,000 to be refunded after they returned. Some of the first students to graduate from government boarding schools used what they were taught to fight back against their captors, very few, the very people who had forced them to learn English in the first place. One of the most notable was Chauncey Yellowrobe, who advocated for the end of the Wild West shows. Born on the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota, the future Lakota activist was shipped to the new Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania, where his long braids were cut off, his clothing replaced with a military suit, and his first language forbidden. The Carlisle Indian School was founded by Captain Richard Henry Pratt, who got the idea while marching 72 Native Americans to Fort Marion, Florida. After the captives were shackled for a period in a dungeon, Pratt took their clothes away, had their hair cut, dressed them in army uniforms, and drilled them like soldiers, wrote Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, in an indigenous people's history of the United States. This successful experiment led Pratt to establish the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania in 1879. Chauncey Yellowrobe graduated from the Carlisle School in 1889. Equipped with fluent English skills, he was hired as an interpreter as, at the OIA. His first assignment was to translate the testimony regarding the mistreatment of Native men in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Yellow Robe was greatly disturbed by what he had heard, and it led to the organization of a group devoted to Native rights, the Society of American Indians. At a mass gathering in Albany, New York, he asked the crowd, what benefit has the Indian derived from Wild West shows? none but what are degrading, demoralizing, and degenerating. It took several years, but Yellow Robe's agitation helped eliminate the genre. At the same time, the new medium of motion pictures was luring patrons away from Wild West theatrics. Buffalo Bill sensed the impending demise of his creation and decided to enter the new world of silent cinema, he planned a movie called The Indian Wars, which would recreate the Wounded Knee Massacre of 1890 on the very spot where the bodies were buried. The Society of American Indians expressed outrage. According to Philip Deloria, the showman insisted that the filming take place on the actual battlefield itself, which included the site of the mass grave of Indian dead. Several Lakota performers refused to participate, threatening to shut down the production. A rumor made the rounds that the actors intended to replace the blanks in their prop guns with live ammunition. 
Cody got wind of the murmurs in the Lakota camp, explained silent film historian Kevin Brownlow. Buffalo Bill spent the night before the battle riding between the Lakotas and the army, assuring each of the peaceful designs and blank cartridges of the other. But you can bet that he was worried as he galloped across the plains that day. Wild West shows are often confused with medicine shows. They emerged at the same time and operated concurrently, but a Wild West show was serious. Medicine shows bordered on burlesque. It was the difference between a major motion picture and its mad magazine parody. The purpose of a medicine show was to make money. The entertainment was merely a vehicle to hook gullible buyers into buying a bottle of bullshit. Just as the Wild West show laid the foundation for Western movie cliches, medicine show hucksterism laid the foundation for commercial broadcasting, where entertainment was merely a catalyst to sell corporate products. Parking a mobile stage in a town of yokels, the medicine show impresario would go into an obnoxious pitch, like the modern-day street performer. Holding a bottle high overhead, the host would shout, It is the only remedy that Indians ever use, and has been known to them for ages. With a few exceptions, the bottled product was marketed as an ancient Indian cure, playing on the ignorance of local whites. Medicine show hustlers labeled their elixirs with phony tribal affiliations, Nez Perce Snuff, Pawnee Indian Remedy, and a product from the Kiowa Medicine Company that promised to cure ulcers, scalds, burns, old sores, itch, piles, wounds, and all skin diseases. Medicine shows employed Native American performers and crew. The OIA had contracts providing performers from different Native nations to several companies. Native participants presented ethnic caricatures and broad stereotypes, and, in a push to assimilate them into European practices, were required to perform Irish and blackface comedy. In the late 1800s, humor writers wrote in character. They used pseudonyms as a smokescreen for incendiary comment, and many wrote in dialect. Samuel Clemens wrote as Mark Twain, Finley Peter Dunn as Mr. Dooley, Charles Farrar Brown as Artemis Ward, Henry Wheeler Shaw as Josh Billings, S.W. Small as Old Siai, David Ross Locke as Petroleum V. Nasby, and Alexander Posey, a Muscogee Creek satirist, as Fuss Fixico. Alexander Posey created his character Fuss Fixico in response to the General Allotment Act of 1887, which discouraged communal land ownership, the default of most Native societies. Native lands were carved up into parcels not exceeding 160 acres, with the remaining land sold off to oil and railway interests. This allotment policy sought to divide Indian land held in common and to force Native people to occupy individual homesteads, explained Philip Deloria. Allotment sought to forcibly impose a change in social evolutionary status. From there, Indians would have, in theory, only a few short steps up the ladder to modern industrial capitalism. This infuriated Alexander Posey. 
Born in 1873, Posey was a member of the Creek Nation. He grew up on the land that later became Oklahoma. He was surrounded by survivors of the Trail of Tears, the infamous forest migration ordered by President Jackson that resulted in scores of indigenous deaths. Posey's literary themes were influenced by the people he saw around him. Elders told him stories about those who had perished due to government policy, and he witnessed a parade of white oil tycoons and railroad barons surveying the land, and he observed the infighting within his own tribe. Some resisted industry, while others jumped at hollow promises of escaping poverty. All of it informed his work as a humorist. Posey's stories featured characters constantly amazed, amused, and puzzled by the greed, materialism, political ambition, dishonesty, and hypocrisy in whites. Posey ran the Ufala Indian Journal and was the first Native American newspaper editor of the 20th century. He used the platform to publish mock letters to the editor under the pseudonym Fox Fixico, tackling Native issues in a Muscogee Creek dialect. Between 1902 and 1906, he wrote 72 Fox Fixico letters, addressing controversies like the Allotment Act, the anglicizing of indigenous names, and boarding schools. Well, so Big Man at Washington was made another rule, like that one about making the engine cut off his hair short, like a prize fighter or saloon keeper. Big Man he was, say this time the engine was had to change his name, just like if the marshal was had a writ for him. So if the engine's name is Wolf Warrior, he has had to call himself John Smith, or maybe so Bill Jones, so nobody else could get his mail out of the post office. Big Man say engine name like Sitting Bull or Tecumseh was too hard to remember and don't sound civilized, like General Custher. The accent was a hat tip to the locals, letting readers know that this character was one of their own. The dialect was immediately understood by readers of the paper, wrote Posey biographer Daniel Littlefield. It was obvious that the character of Fuss Fixico was a creek. At the turn of the century, J. Ojijateka Brent Serra, a Mohawk theater impresario from the Six Nations Reserve in Upper Canada, asked Posey to develop an act. A report said the producer wanted him, Posey, to take his humor on the stage by joining a program of lectures that Brant Sarah was arranging from Indians from various parts of the country. The idea of a lone man addressing a crowd with the intention of making them laugh was brand new. It wasn't yet called stand-up, but the device was the same. But before the scheduled gig could occur, Posey crossed a flooded river near his house and was swept away. The man who could have been the first Native American stand-up comedian was dead at the age of 34. The 1491s in their underwear. I wrote these commentaries when I was working in the communications department of the Seminole Nation, and they were sort of like Alexander Posey with his Fos Fixico letters explains Sterlin Harjo. Limhi is my native name, which means eagle, 
and I called it News from the Woods by Lumahi Harjo. They were letters to the editor in which I would just talk shit and mess with people I knew in the community. Sterling Harjo grew up in Holdenville, Oklahoma, a prolific indie filmmaker. Today, he is editing a cinema vérité documentary about contemporary Native artists and preparing to shoot a new television series for FX called Reservation Dogs. Harjo has multiple projects to his name, but none has brought him as much joy as his five-man sketch comedy troupe, The 1491s. The 1491s have a loyal following, and fans will travel hundreds of miles to catch one of their live shows. We resonated and struck a nerve because we made fun of ourselves, said Harjo. White people are easy to make fun of, and if you make fun of white people in front of Indians, you're sort of yelling into a vacuum. But we made fun of our weaknesses as Native people and held a mirror up to ourselves. In addition to Harjo, the 1491s consist of Thomas Ryan Redcorn, an Osage graphic designer, Megizi Pensano, a Ponca Ojibwe screenwriter, Dallas Goldtooth, a Dine de Wakantan environmental activist, and Bobby Wilson, a Sisaton Huapeton Dakota visual artist. Collectively, they are the most respected native comedians working today. My dad and my grandpa were both singer-songwriters, said Redcorn. My grandpa wrote songs on piano was, and was in a barbershop quartet. But my teenage rebellion led me down the path of death metal. I was in an emo hardcore band as the front man. It was me, my brother, another, another native guy who was Arapaho, and a couple of white guys who were tagging along. We were the most unserious death metal band you could imagine. In that genre, you're surrounded by sadness and darkness, so my inclination was to do the opposite. It was comedy-centric, and a lot of our show just dealt with our demeanor. I left that band when my mom passed away, and I was kicked out of school. I went through the yellow pages looking for a place that would give me an internship. I found this place called Trans Digital in downtown Kansas City. One of the first jobs they gave me was editing a How to Make Balloon Animals video. It was just an hour of balloons squeaking, eek, eek, eep, eep. We had these huge speakers for editing, and I was just listening to the sound of balloons squeaking for a full week. Eight to ten hours a day. If I so much as look at one of these balloons today, every single crease makes that sound in my head. I can't be anywhere near them. Suffering from balloon animal PTSD, Redcorn became an accomplished editor and started collaborating with Sterling Harjo. I was friends with his cousin, says Redcorn. I saw one of my film I saw one of his films and it totally transformed the way I wanted to spend my energy and the kind of art I wanted to create. The 1491s were born out of these conversations with Sterling. Man, I am so fucking sick of all these sad Indian movies. Even among our own people, that's what gets the funding and that's what's getting made. It was a lot of really heavy content, and I'm not saying that stuff shouldn't exist, but there's gotta be something else on the menu.
Together, they made a short film called Smiling Indians, which sought to smash stoic stereotypes. Since the late 1800s, thanks to the famous black-and-white portraits by photographer Edward S. Curtis, the stereotypical image of the super-serious Native American has endured, leaving whites with the impression that Native Americans never laughed, never joked, never smiled. Redcorn explained, laughter and joy is very much a part of Native culture. A film like this is our way of trying to counterbalance the images that kids are exposed to in the classroom. The film's strength was its simplicity, a five-minute collage of contemporary Natives smiling, laughing, and being themselves. Dallas Goldtooth and Megizi Pensonu grew up obsessed with the same movies in the same Minnesota household. They could recite films like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome by heart, and were completely smitten with Sucker Brothers comedies like Airplane, The Naked Gun, and Hot Shots. Dallas and I, ever since we were little kids, we imitated the movies we liked, said Pensuno. Zucker Brothers, Mel Brooks, Monty Python. Even up to high school, we would do skits from MTV's The State. Their father, Tom Goldtooth, a celebrated environmental activist, led the family in ceremonies. Dallas Goldtooth explains, My family is traditional, meaning that we still practice a lot of our original ceremonies and traditional songs, and we used to do a lot of traditional gatherings. Through that upbringing, every time there was more than four people in the room, we were always joking, always laughing, always celebrating in some way, even in the darkest times. Dallas and Megizi got their hands on a cheap Panasonic camera and started improvising short films in the early 2000s. Their first video was filmed in the woods behind their home. It was a takeoff on the Aboriginal People's Television Network, a Canadian cable channel known for its dry, didactic, and low-budget programming. We had just watched one of these bad APTN shows, and it was clear the guys didn't know what they were doing, Pensano says with a laugh. It was too funny. At that time, there was some personal stuff going on at home, and I was bummed out. Dallas had this little white flip cam, and he said, let's just go out in the woods and record something to make ourselves laugh. Do that little res accent that you do, and we'll pretend like we're making one of these bad APTN shows. We shot all day and then edited it down. It wasn't professional in any way. Later, my mom told me she was worried because we had been quiet for so long. But then all of a sudden, she heard us laughing and laughing for days. They posted the video for friends and family, but it somehow found its way to Thomas Ryan Redcorn, who felt like he was watching a pair of kindred spirits. Pensano says... Ryan and Sterling had been doing videos down in Oklahoma. Dallas and I were doing these videos in Minnesota. Sterling contacted me. Dude, I'm going to be in Minnesota in a couple of months. We should get together and do some stuff. Harjo and Redcorn came to Minneapolis to screen Barking Water, Harjo's latest film, at a local film festival. Sterling... Thomas Ryan, 
McGuzzi, and Dallas came together for the first time, and Dallas dragged along his friend Bobby Wilson. Raised in South Minneapolis along Franklin Avenue, Wilson had a tumultuous upbringing that saw him bouncing from one shelter to another. His parents had a volatile marriage, and his mother fled with the children. They ended up living in a shelter, and it was there that Wilson developed an ability to charm strangers and make them laugh. When you grow up in these shelters and country, county facilities, you're locked up with everybody. Black people, Asian people, Hispanic people, you are all in this situation, and you can either be assholes to each other, or you can figure out what we have in common. It's a survival tactic, really. I guess that's why I kind of fell into this comedy and just started swimming. At 14, Wilson learned the truth about his parents. My dad was trying to get custody of us after we left, and he was demanding blood tests, maternity tests, and that's when she told me she wasn't my biological mom. Wilson felt betrayed. I ran away to Worcester, Massachusetts, on a greyhound and stayed there for a couple months with this lady who had been a legal advocate at a battered women's shelter where we happened to be staying. Wilson slept in shelters by night and spent his days creating illicit art on the street. Graffiti was a huge part of what defined me as a teenager. I was 16 when I was arrested for graffiti and they didn't know what to do with me because I didn't have any parents. He was sentenced to two years in a group home and a $50,000 fine. All the while, he continued to paint. His visual flourish showcased an obvious gift. Upon release, he focused on art and ended up at the Santa Fe Indian Market, selling his wares at the famed arts festival in New Mexico. That's where I first met Ryan Redcorn and Sterling Harjo, he says. Ryan is a really social dude, so we kind of just started talking to each other and geeking out about art we were into. We had a lot of the same knowledge. We were walking around saying hi to folks, doing everything together until probably about 2 or 3 in the morning. He was like, hey man, you can come and stay at mine and Sterling's hotel. I had $5 in my pocket, a bottle of water, and trail mix. I ended up staying with Ryan and Sterling that night. Back in Minnesota, Wilson was hired at a youth shelter in St. Paul, where he bonded with a fellow employee, Dallas Goldtooth. The two lived near each other, played video games on the regular, and became fast friends. When Harjo and Redcorn arrived in town to screen Barking Water, the other movie theaters in town were showing The Twilight Saga, New Moon. The box office hit featured the wolf pack, five chiseled Native Americans who transform into wolves. Sterling, Thomas Ryan, Dallas, McGeezy, and Bobby decided it was in need of mockery. It inspired their first sketch, Wolf Pack Auditions, in which they played a group of posturing incompetents auditioning for the role. Basically, the idea of the video is about these native actors exploiting their nativeness to get ahead, says Harjo. That's something we had seen for a long time, and it was sort of based on real life. 
My dad and I had gone to this open audition for Last of the Mohicans or something. We were like, yeah, we're native, let's go to this. We sat in the lobby and immediately felt weird about it. I had short hair and a Hawaiian shirt, which was definitely not what they were looking for. There were all these long-haired, chiseled natives, and one guy had a choker on and was rubbing himself with baby oil to make himself shine. I had this feeling of, man, are we real natives? What I realize now is that we were the real natives in that scenario. So I thought it would be good to make fun of these people exploiting their culture to get a role and putting up a false front of who they are as native people to please the white director or white producer. Dallas told me the idea, recalls Wilson. I was like, dude, that sounds fucking funny. I hate those Twilight films. I was doing a two-year mural at the Little Earth of United Tribes housing projects, and they gave me an office key. I said, I've got a spot where we could film. A shirtless Dallas Goldtooth flaunted a loincloth. A shirtless Bobby Wilson wore red underwear. Mikizi Pensono sported an incongruous fur coat. And Thomas Ryan Redcorn was nearly nude with only a plastic turtle to shield his groin. Wilson said, What I didn't know was that there was a Sunday school that rented the place on the weekends. We pulled up there, and Ryan already had no shirt and a turtle over his dick. They were like, uh, can we help you? I was like, I work here. Harjo says the shoot was an improvised delight. We couldn't quit laughing. It felt like we tapped into this thing that was waiting to be tapped into. It was a video by Indians for Indians. The idea of a Native American in a contemporary role. Nobody's looking for that, but when we put it on YouTube, we got rid of that middle step, and nobody said, we don't want to see Indians on the screen. People did want to see it. It had 10,000 views in a matter of hours. Wilson had no idea anyone had watched it until a bunch of school children recognized him. I was teaching a week-long poetry workshop in South Dakota at the St. Francis Indian School, he says. I got there on Monday. That video dropped on Wednesday. And on Thursday, all the fucking kids in that school had already broke through their little firewalls to watch it. The whole school. Even the teachers were like, shit, man, I fucking saw that video. Simply by creating contemporary comedy, the 1491s smashed stereotypes. Pensano says, This propaganda of a savage Indian or an overly peaceful and passive Indian, the work that we do seeks to reverse that completely. Vaudeville was fraudville. Stereotype propaganda absolutely dominated vaudeville theater in the early 1900s. A quick glance at vaudeville listings from the turn of the century makes it seem like there were Native American acts touring all over, but the advertisements are deceptive. Vaudeville theaters presented Chief Pula, Chief Kapulikan, Chief Wangonewa, Chief Roaring Thunder, Princess Chinkia, Princess Deerhorn, Princess Floating Cloud, Princess White Deer, Princess Redwing, Princess Palanqui, Princess Watawaso, and Princess Wantura. Nearly all of them were white imposters wearing headdresses. 
The actual Native Americans of vaudeville were generally there as part of their compulsory boarding school curriculum. Students from the Carlisle Indian School toured vaudeville as civilization success stories, and the purpose was to show how Native Americans had been successfully converted from savagery to European refinement. The most popular Native act in vaudeville was the Carlisle Indian Band, who served as de facto ambassadors for the school. The government saw to it that plenty of photos appeared in the newspapers, showing Carlisle students in their military haircuts and uniforms, looking very European as they held violins, cellos, and trombones. It was the government's way of assuring a settler population that the Indian problem had been solved. From now on, rather than be resentful of the white settlers on their land, Native Americans would be content to play the music of John Philip Sousa. It was never mentioned that the Carlisle School had a graveyard on campus, where more than 200 students had been buried. In public, it was pomp and circumstance, but in private correspondence, bureaucrats confessed that the whole process of indoctrinating Native children by force was a morbid disaster. Oliver Lafarge of the Bureau of Indian Affairs privately described the schools as penal institutions where little children are sentenced to hard labor for a term of years for the crime of being born to their mothers. William McConnell, an inspector for the BIA, wrote in 1899, the word murder is a terrible word, but we are little less than murderers if we follow the course, after the attention of those in charge has been called to its fatal results. Hundreds of boys and girls are sent home to die so that institutions where brass bands or the principal advertisements may be maintained. The school also presented European-style comedy in the form of comic operas. The Philadelphia Inquirer used an infamous racial slur in their February 1909 report. Redskin Comedians is Carlisle's latest. Advent of Aboriginal Mirthmakers a feature of great interest at this year's commencement of the Carlisle Indian School will be the production of a comic opera. The cast, chorus, stagehands, and orchestra will all be Indians. In connection with this production will be the advent of Indian comedians, a novelty which fairly paralyzes those who know the Redskin and are yet unfamiliar with his remarkable development at Carlisle. The school paper praised those Native students who gave a particularly clever impersonation of Negro comedians. The success of the Carlisle Indian Band spawned several imitators, including the United States Indian Band. It followed the same basic formula, but with an added attraction, Pete Red Jacket, Oneida Comedian. Red Jacket was a four-year-old who did physical comedy while the band played behind him. He became such a popular draw that he turned solo in 1907. The child star toured with his father, who acted as the straight man in a schoolroom act, the popular vaudeville genre where a teacher played straight-to-school kids delivering joke responses. Pete Red Jacket sat at a desk while the teacher looked approvingly at his model student. When the teacher turned his back, 
Red Jacket burst into a soft shoe dance and made grotesque faces. When the teacher turned back around, Red Jacket would freeze in place with a metaphoric halo above his head. It was a bona fide crowd pleaser. Red Jacket unveiled his new partner at a vaudeville house in Scranton, Pennsylvania in 1911. The act was called Pete Red Jacket and His Comedy Donkey, and featured a burrow doing tricks in time to comic dialogue. Red Jacket had plenty of competition in this long-forgotten vaudeville field, among them Cotton's Comedy Donkeys, Beeler's Comedy Donkey, Pat West and His Comedy Donkey, and Honeypot, World's Greatest Comedy Donkey. Red Jacket's popularity endured until the cute little boy grew into an awkward, lanky teenager. The writing on the wall was as plain as the acne on his face, and the comic whom the white press dubbed the droll little red-faced comedian left the business to start the Pete Red Jacket Coal Corporation. The vacancy was filled by another Native American child, the offspring of an interracial vaudeville team. Sometimes billed as the Broadway girl and the Indian, the team of Clifford and Wayne featured a Lakota husband and his Caucasian wife. Originally from South, D- Lakota, South Dakota, the Lakota half of the duo was praised by the Salt Lake Tribune for his impersonations of Joe Welch, the famous Hebrew comedian, and of Englishmen and Irishmen. They had marginal success, but with the birth of their son, the act became a smash. Their first engagement as a family unit was in the autumn of 1916 in Wausau, Wisconsin. The poster in front of the venue said, Bijou Theater Tonight, Refined Vaudeville, See Baby Clifford, The Only Indian Baby in Vaudeville, Novelty Comedy. Clifford and Wayne gave their son an exotic stage name, Master Carl Wayne, and renamed the act the Clifford Wayne Trio. The diminutive child learned rapid dance steps, backflips, and celebrity impressions. Long before Sammy Davis Jr. became a child star in the Will Maston Trio, Master Carl was essentially doing the same shtick. He was considered a positive riot over the entire Hippodrome circuit, and the New York world called him the pocket edition of Fred Stone, referencing a famous vaudevillian who could do everything. His celebrity status gained him entry into the Boy Scouts of America, which up to that point had barred non-white children from membership. Under the watchful eye of child protection organizations, Children were barred from playing vaudeville in New York. The Clifford Wayne trio, however, was able to bypass the regulations thanks to their status as indigenous performers. Variety claimed that civil authorities had no jurisdiction over natives who were under the general supervision of the government interior department. The Lakota team was praised for avoiding stereotypes. Indeed, he is a sort of Wonder Child Performer, wrote the Dayton Daily News. There is not a war whoop, a tomahawk, or a wild and savage dance in the whole act. Variety agreed. The Clifford Wayne trio have gotten away from the stereotyped regulation Indian act, and only in the man's announcement is reference made to their race.
Master Carl succeeded as a youthful, versatile, entertaining comedian for ten years until the breaking of his voice destroyed his ability to do impressions. After one last tour through the vaudeville houses of Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Denver, and Albuquerque, Master Carl was doomed by puberty and retired from show business at the age of 13. Adrienne Chalapa pays the price for correcting her history teacher. Eight years in, Adrienne Chalapa has done stand-up in hundreds of tribal communities. Reservation to reservation, her performance conditions vary wildly. The casinos often have the ideal setup. Professional lighting, good promotion, proper amplification. But beyond them, the gigs are unpredictable. Worst case scenario is you're booked for a show in a place that has never had comedy, she says. No lights, no stage, no microphone. You just gotta roll with it. I was scheduled for an outdoor show at Res in Utah at 7 p.m. They didn't take into account that the sun would be down. It was dark. They had no lights. One of the other comedians drove her car up and shined her headlights on me. I've done Albuquerque, Phoenix, Los Angeles, and Seattle, but most of my shows are outside the cities on the reservations. Native comedy is always disconnected from the other comedy scenes. I've done stuff in New York City where I'm the only native in the entire room, but it's not on purpose that most of my work has been native-related. It's an isolation thing. The comedy hubs are obviously New York and Los Angeles. Any comedian not in those places, you must plug into that industry. I'm just too far away, and I'm a mother of four, so I'm kind of in a weird spot. I get to do four shows a month, and each requires two or three days of travel. That's the biggest issue for native people in comedy, isolation. Cortez, Colorado is 190 miles northwest of Albuquerque. Adrienne Chalapa is at home, preparing for a brief stand-up tour that will take her from the Four Corners area to the northeastern United States. She's trying to pack clothes into a pink metallic roller bag as one of her four children is coughing and sneezing, struggling with a cold. I'm enrolled Kiowa and Plains Apache, and I grew up in several different towns, she explains. To be a member of a tribal nation, you have to be enrolled, and each tribe has the right to set their own criteria for enrollment. You have some legitimate natives who are not enrolled who, because their tribe's enrollment process is too strict. So they're not considered native, but they really are native. Some tribes enroll based on descendancy only. If you have an ancestor, then you're part of a tribal nation. Then there are other tribes with blood quantum where you have to have at least one full-blood grandparent. And then there are tribes between those two scenarios, not based solely on enrollment or blood quantum, but whether or not you live on the reservation or have a parent who does. If a non-native tells you their ethnicity, you wouldn't question it, but with natives it's like X and Y and Z. Are you full blood? 
Do other human beings have the same kind kind of criteria? No, there's no one else. Just horses, dogs, and us. Growing up, she moved from town to town, school to school. We were always moving because of the dysfunction in our family. By the age of six, I had lived in Flagstaff, Gallup, Winslow, all of what we call border towns, the white towns next to the southwest tribal reservations, although my tribes are from Oklahoma. I grew up mostly in Anadarko, Lawton, Cash, and Carnegie. Most of my childhood was spent on or near the Kiowa Comanche Apache Reservation in Oklahoma. By the 10th grade, I had attended 12 different schools. My story is the cliche of the Native American family with a really tough upbringing, but at a young age, my dad showed me Monty Python, and every Saturday night, we watched Saturday Night Live. It was the one thing that was consistent. Sometimes things were really heavy. There were times when family members were homeless, family members were struggling with depression, family members were struggling with substance abuse, family members were in jail. Yet, we could turn on the TV and watch comedy and laugh. It was such a fun time for SNL. It was the Wayne's World era. We would start mimicking the sketches and mimicking the characters, and pretty soon you've got inside jokes within your own family. And then my dad kind of caught me up and made sure that I knew about the original cast. My love for comedy just grew from there. My brothers and I, we became collectors of comedy. It shaped my worldview. Her early obsessions included Mel Brooks and Cheech and Chong. My dad had the Cheech and Chong cassette tapes, and I put them in my Walkman. When my dad realized that I have a love for comedy, he started showing me more stuff and gave me a little Comedy 101. He showed me Charlie Chaplin to give me a sense of the comedy silent era. And then when I was in middle school, he introduced me to Monty Python and Mel Brooks. I loved it. At one point, I was watching Blazing Saddles every day. To this day, I can repeat it line for line. My dad was in and out of my life, but comedy kept me grounded. It was the one escape. She hated school, a common trait of future stand-ups, even though her grades were pristine. During history class, she confronted a teacher for giving a whitewashed version of colonization. My stepdad was Comanche and a real activist type, and he had schooled me on the relationship between the government and natives. I got kicked out of public school for heckling my teacher. I was sent to Riverside Indian Boarding School in Oklahoma, and I got in trouble right away. I always got straight A's, so that wasn't the problem. It was my behavior. They put me in transition dorm, which is like a boot camp. My boarding school had a bad reputation. It was established in 1871, but obviously it's different today than it was then, or even 30 years ago. Today it is run by the community and has a 95% native staff. A lot of the staff had gone to school there, as had their parents and grandparents, and they knew the history of abuse. 
It used to be a place where you'd get a bad education and a violent education. But when I was there, the school was all about embracing our culture and uplifting the students. I can tell you, I didn't feel much pride in my culture until I went to that school. I was surrounded by the diversity of different tribes and realized we're still going strong. It was really a good thing for me. There were also some bad things about the school. It was very institutionalized, and they searched us all the time. Random searches of our belongings and bodies, looking for contraband. I knew my constitutional rights, and the searches were one of the things that I had a big problem with. Mostly because I was hiding contraband. Today, her young boys, ages 1, 5, 7, and 11, take up much of her time. Family obligations have limited her ability to be a near be near a stand-up scene, so she carved one out where she lived. I started doing comedy on the reservations out here in the southwest, she says. It was really different than if I had started at comedy clubs or at an open mic night. Native American comedians started getting together on the reservation and hosting comedy shows by their own accord. They grew their own thing. Sometimes there's a language barrier. I don't speak the languages of the southwestern tribes, and sometimes you'll have half a crowd that doesn't speak English. And it's very rural where I live, so I have to travel to get to any show. Chalapa is doing the 90-minute drive from Cortez to the airport in Durango, Colorado. She's flying to San Bernardino, California, to participate in a taping of Native American stand-up comics. It's being produced for FNX, a digital sub-channel devoted to Native content, distributed by PBS. Most people don't have it in their cable package, but for Chalapa, it's worth the struggle to get there. It will be costly and time-consuming, but Chalapa is hungry for television exposure. I have to pay for my own transportation to get there, she says. Money-wise, it's tough, but it's an opportunity to get our comedy out there. Nobody ever asks us to put together a show and film it. Natives aren't even part of the conversation. Essentially, we're Hollywood's neglected children. You know, we're basically saying, please pay attention to us. Put us on TV, but not in feathers. Boarding her flight in Durango, her thoughts revert to the last time she flew to Los Angeles, the result of an unwelcome controversy. A few years ago, Chalapa stumbled across an old routine by Ralphie May, the stand-up comic who rose to prominence on the NBC reality series Last Comic Standing. She publicly criticized a routine of his for engaging in racist stereotypes. The net result was an ugly onslaught of death threats and the hostility directed at Chalapa and her family. She never would have predicted that just a few months later she would become Ralphie May's opening act. Will Rogers' grandpa is murdered in a vengeance killing. Durango is out of the way and glad of it, said the Cherokee comedian who owed his notoriety to the newspapers. 
The Cherokee Nation established a newspaper of its own in Georgia in 1828. It was a new phenomenon. As with most Native American cultures, Cherokee storytelling was an oral tradition. Sequoia, a famous Cherokee leader, created a syllabary that translated Cherokee to the page, and by 1809, political fact sheets focusing on Cherokee issues were being published. By the 1820s, the Cherokee Nation established a written constitution and Republican form of government as a means of defending themselves against Washington, D.C. The Georgia legislature was alarmed by their progressive culture. In response, they passed legislation declaring all natives incompetent and forbade them from serving as witness or party to any suit in which the defendant was a white man. Using the power of their newspapers, Cherokee leaders vehemently spoke out against it. In retaliation, the state of Georgia declared all Cherokee media illegal. Andrew Jackson campaigned for president with a promise to remove Native peoples from Georgia and North Carolina with the purpose of securing their land for white settlement and expand slavery. When he was elected in 1828, Jackson's supporters were emboldened. Thousands of white settlers illegally swarmed the area. Previously, federal troops had been stationed to protect native peoples from white settlers who breached treaty conditions. After Jackson took office, he withdrew the troops and allowed the settlers to take over. The state of Georgia then sent in its own troops to protect the illegal settlements and passed a law preventing non-whites from extracting resources from Cherokee land. It led to a series of complex events ultimately resulting in the Indian Removal Act. The Indian Removal Act was passed by Congress in 1830. 16,000 people were forcibly removed by the U.S. Cavalry with bayonets pointed at their backs. The Cherokee were forced to march through the winter on foot, 700 miles from Georgia to what the government dubbed Indian Territory. Over the course of six months, many contracted dysentery, measles, whooping cough, and hypothermia. If someone was moving in a manner considered too slow for the cavalry, they were shot and left behind. By the time they reached the future Oklahoma, 25% were dead. It became known as the Trail of Tears. In 1830, Robert Rogers, the grandfather of Will Rogers, was a resident of Tallapoosa, Georgia. He was among the minority of Cherokee citizens who cut a deal with the Jackson administration in 1830. In essence, the government told them, give up your land willingly, and we will give you agreeable terms in Indian Territory. You can go voluntarily or be relocated by force. Either way, you're going. Approximately 17,000 Cherokee refused to go, while about 2,000 agreed. Those who agreed received large plots of land and a $5 million payment to divide among themselves. They were nicknamed the Old Settlers. The Cherokee majority who refused to cede their land never forgave them. Those who survived the Trail of Tears 
found themselves living among the old settlers, whom they resented. It created an immense and immediate class distinction. Among the hated was Robert Rogers. The government gave him a substantial plot of land, and he became a prosperous rancher as a result. He welcomed a son, Clem, into the world in 1839. Three years later, Cherokee vigilantes delivered retribution. Clem was just a toddler when his father was brutally murdered in a vengeance killing. On his birthday, Clem Rogers received a cowboy starter kit from his family, a bull, full ho- four horses, 25 cows, and two black enslaved people. The pressure on Native Americans to assimilate sometimes meant conforming with American slavery. Clem became a full-time rancher, driving 500 steers from Indian Territory to the stockyards of St. Louis, Missouri, for auction each year. A Cherokee woman named Mary Shrimshire was impressed with his rustic machismo, and they married in 1858. With the Civil War approaching, the Cherokee were pushed to take a side. As his father had done in 1830, Clem Rogers hedged his bets. He joined the Confederacy and told the two people he kept enslaved, You two can do as you wish. Join whichever side you wish. If my side wins, I will come back after the war is over, and you will be my slaves again. If the North wins, you will be free men, and I will have no control over you. The enslaved person known as Rab fought for the North. The enslaved person known as Hughes fought for the South. After the war, Rab had a child and named him after Clem Rogers. A new treaty was signed with the federal government outlawing slavery in the Cherokee Nation. It also canceled the provision shielding Indian territory from white settlement. Once again, the Cherokee watched as squatters, railway interests, and oil speculators moved in. Rather than fight the coming of the railway, Clem Rogers developed a new ranch beside it. He used the emerging rail yard to ship cattle directly from his ranch to the stockyards of St. Louis, cutting down on labor and time. With this increase in profits, the Rogers family was quite wealthy at the time that Will Rogers was born in 1879. While just a young child, Rogers learned how to do dazzling tricks with a lariat. He was taught the ways of the rope by Dan Walker, an African-American cowboy who married the daughter of one of the people enslaved by the Rogers family. He spent hours with young Will, and the boy was enamored with this meditative diversion. The Cherokee Nation allowed white settlers to lease their land without being paid up front. As it turned out, they would never be paid at all. Clem Rogers was livid, shouting, Are we powerless to enforce our laws? Are we to submit to such great wrongs by white men, not citizens? There is not a single law in this country enforced. We are fast, fast drifting into the hands of the white men. His situation worsened when Henry L. Dawes, the Republican senator from Massachusetts, introduced the General Allotment Act of 1887, which would end tribal autonomy and outlaw communal land ownership in Indian Territory.
As Alexander Posey had written about in the guise of Fus Mexico, Native Americans were restricted to a maximum of 160 acres of land. Clem Rogers lost 4,840 acres, and his ranching empire was destroyed. The federal government took the land and turned it over to white oil barons and railroad tycoons. The White House framed the move as a benevolent gesture, meant to protect Native Americans from armed settlers, but in their private correspondence, they were more candid. In an internal, internal memo, the House Committee on Indian Affairs wrote, The real aim of this bill is to get at the Indian lands and open them up for settlement. The provisions for the apparent benefit of the Indian are but a pretext to get his lands and occupy them. Will Rogers was listed on the Cherokee Authenticated Roll of 1880. Relatives listed on the roll included his mother, Mary A. Rogers, his grandmother, Elizabeth Shrimsher, his aunt, Sarah Catherine Shrimsher, his great-aunt, Polly Smith, and his cousin, Watt Smith. He referred to himself as the boy from Indian Territory. He was 11 years old when the U.S. Cavalry massacred 300 Native men, women, and children at Wounded Knee in 1890. The U.S. government was pushing an aggressive assimilation strategy that punished Native Americans who defied the child separation policies that forced their children into boarding schools. Prosperous one day, broken the next, Will Rogers gained a sense of political injustice. It would inform his worldview in the years to come as the world's most famous Native American comedian.